Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, March 29th, 2023, and today we're going to be asking and answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the past seven days. And as we do each week on the Roundup, we take our questions from the themes we see developing in our newsletter that goes out each Monday. And that newsletter is called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And there are a couple different ways that you can subscribe to that newsletter. I'll be dropping in the link to our uh, chat in the chat to our smieconsulting.org slash subscribe website where you can uh, sign up for the email version of the newsletter. I'll also drop in the chat uh, the link to this most recent edition of the chat from Monday. It comes out Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and we put together uh, the newsletter uh, in email version and that you can subscribe to or via LinkedIn. And our LinkedIn uh, subscribers, uh, there's nearly a thousand on LinkedIn and a hundred on the email, so uh, joining a larger community of international educators that are getting that newsletter delivered to them either in their LinkedIn feed or into their in email inboxes Monday mornings each week. But we divide that newsletter into two different sections, social media and international ed news, and oftentimes where those overlap. And with regard to social media and international ed, you'll see sometimes uh, both of those topics will be covered here on the Midweek Roundup where we go more in depth into some of the questions raised by these news stories about how these topics really influ can influence what we do in international education. And we go into some bigger picture issues oftentimes and take a, take a look at things from a global perspective as we need to do in international education. That's our jobs, to be aware of the world around us and events that affect uh, what we do in our field. And we, we'll go through some of that today on the Roundup. So as we do each week, uh, let's get started with our first question. Uh, that is, what does the future hold for TikTok and why does that matter? So as you, anyone who's been, uh, unless they've been living under a rock for the past uh, past couple of years, in fact, uh, going back to the Trump administration, TikTok has been in the spotlight for U.S. Uh, uh, elected officials who have seen, uh, for various reasons, uh, most, most to do with national security, uh, reasons why uh, Lawmakers are now saying TikTok and have been saying is a national security threat and it's a bipartisan effort here uh, regarding TikTok and the sharing of uh, user data uh, to uh, China, uh, to the Chinese Communist Party and what that means for Americans. Uh, the, as we saw last week, the, uh, the CEO of TikTok, uh, who's from Singapore, based in Singapore, was uh, testified before Congress talked through a lot of the technical issues related to TikTok or related to algorithms and servers and all of these things that uh, are, have posed the national security concerns that have led to not just the United States uh, taking action, but uh, governments around the world uh, banning the use of TikTok on government devices. Uh, we know for know for for several years, TikTok has actually been banned uh, in India, uh, along with a range of other uh, China apps or apps based in China. Uh, that uh, there are a number of other countries who uh, have followed the U.S. suit uh, in government banning government devices from having TikTok installed, and I'll be sharing some of the links out to those in the chat. We've had 
Uh, we've had ones from the, uh, we had Canada previously. We now have uh, the UK and New Zealand also joining that list of countries that our, our governments are banning uh, TikTok on government devices. So uh, the, uh, the world is sort of aligning, at least the Western world is aligning against uh, TikTok in a lot of different ways um, because of for, for at least at the government level, for national security concerns. Uh, what is threatened in the U.S. is the banning of TikTok altogether, much like it is in India. Uh, it hasn't been enacted yet. Uh, there's legislation uh, that might be taken forward that does ban uh, TikTok from the app stores in the United States. Uh, but there are ways around that, too, uh, in terms of VPNs and all those wonderful things that we usually used to access other platforms uh, in our country or other in other countries like in China using a VPN to access Western social media. So there are always ways around it. But uh, in terms of the why, national security seems to be, even for the general public, seems to be the rationale driving a lot of what uh, institutions or governments are and elected officials are leaning towards uh, for uh, using uh, the power of uh, the government to ban um, ban platforms that are considered dangerous uh, to a national security interest. That seems to be where most governments are going. Now, what is happening uh, on the practical level, and as it impacts international education, we see uh, <clears throat> several campuses have restricted the use of TikTok, and those tend to be uh, campuses in states where the state governments, about over half of state governments in the United States, have also banned TikTok on university or uh, public uh, public devices, uh, public official devices. Uh, state universities being funded by state governments, they have uh, fall under those those restrictions. Some have more uh, more. Uh, temporary bans or uh, potentially can be seen as bans um, in states like Nevada. Uh, Nevada, uh, where UNLV is, our, uh, our Board of Regents, their Committee on Communication and Technology has recommended the discontinuation of use of TikTok on for, uh, for institutional accounts uh, unless it is a need meets uh, is is mission driven in its purpose and are uh, in at UNLV we have two TikTok accounts official t uh, university TikTok accounts one for the university as a whole and one for our admissions office uh, and are using those to they hire a team of students to share their day in a life kind of snapshots and do the get do the challenges and all the funny memes that go through TikTok and are uh, rated by the algorithm so a lot of institutions are using TikTok uh, that aren't being restricted by their states uh, to reach uh, prospective students. So, and that's uh, in, at, in UNLV's case, that's considered mission driven to reach prospective students. So, that we, we are still continuing with that. But um, uh, what I think is happening is this, this talk of banning is coming at a time where a lot of universities uh, are, are using it not only to reach overseas students, but are trying to re primarily using it to reach domestic students since there are 150 million Americans on this platform, the greater majority of which are in that uh, pre-college to college age demographic. So uh, that's the, the short form uh, video app, app that TikTok is, is uh, really helping to uh, 
uh, to to reach a, reach an audience where they are that they're spending a ton of time on, uh, and that two thirds uh, in a 2022 Pew Research study, two thirds of teenagers are using TikTok, making making it a vital recruitment tool, according to an Inside Higher Ed article. So what we're seeing is. Uh, students, uh, prospective students are using it, current students are using it on university campuses, and it's a way to uh, connect students and meet students where they are, which is always one of the key uh, guiding principles I've always talked about here on the Roundup uh, that I've talked about with my consults with university co uh, clients that I talk about with uh, the team at UNLV. We have to have a presence where our target audiences live. And our target audiences, if they're domestic students, are living on, on social media, living particularly on TikTok at this point in time. Won't always be that way. There'll be another one that comes along, I'm sure. But uh, we have to have a presence where they are. And that means an online, a robust online presence in on platforms where they spend their time. So uh, this Inside Higher Ed article uh, shares some important, uh, well, not some important art examples, but it show, shares some examples on different college campuses uh, that uh, from uh, Washington University, uh, their TikTok accounts, uh, and also uh, we've seen a couple of others um, uh, that are featured in this article too, Columbia University and another another institution, a lesser known institution, Montevallo uh, University. So University of Montevallo and, and Alabama. Uh, so that's, uh, there's some great examples of universities that are using TikTok well at this point. So it's um, a matter of uh, will these continue to, uh, to have, uh, to bear a lot of fruit for those universities and will they be allowed to? And, and the question will come, uh, in in what what the future lies for for TikTok in the United States, um, a lot of uh, commentators have said this is a bargaining tool to uh, ensure uh, the security of data that data storage uh, for TikTok. Uh, the CEO made the claim that uh, all the servers are. Uh, are U.S. based uh, for U.S. TikTok users and that none of that data is shared with uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, or the government in China. Uh, the, the challenge will be and where a lot of the, uh, the those that are, are commenting about this are concerned primarily because uh, because of national security laws in China passed in 2017, any Chinese citizen or company uh, has to uh, turn over information uh, from its government, from its personal records or uh, or user user records to the Chinese government on request. There's no if ands or buts about it. They have to do that. And the reason why in the U.S. that's a concern, ByteDance, who is the parent company, is China-based. Uh, that TikTok, that, that as it operates in the United States, is uh, owned by ByteDance. So uh, any requests from the Chinese government for user data from ByteDance uh, products, uh, and TikTok's one of those, uh, would have to be revealed to the Chinese Communist Party. And for obvious reasons, the U.S. government is, is, is uh, opposed to doing that. So uh, that uh, is, a, if it's a way to get 51% ownership of TikTok in U.S. hands so that they control the U.S. company controls that uh, data decisions, not the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, that would be uh, probably what most U.S. Uh, elected officials would be angling for. Uh, what China would probably want, that it would prefer that it be banned uh, because uh, it would prevent them from giving up uh, an important tool uh, that uses an all-powerful algorithm that they control uh, to um, 
to access uh, user data, and it uh, allows them to continue to operate in other countries, just not in the U.S., and potentially other countries would follow suit that are also banning it on government devices, may also ban it for, for, um, for, for uh, citizen, regular citizen use as well. So we'll see where this goes, but it, it matters in that if this is taken away as a tool to reach students, uh, it means that uh, those students will not be able to interact with U.S. colleges uh, on these platforms, whether they're domestic or international, uh, that it means that a, a very significant channel is now taken out of the equation and will force universities to reach these students in other ways. So it is going to require some flexibility and adaptability uh, if decisions get made that will negatively impact what an institution is able to do in terms of reaching students. So. Backup plans need to need to be made if they haven't been already to address the potential fallout from a, a government wide government ban for that applies to all U.S. citizens not having being able to have access to TikTok. So we'll see where this goes, but it, it's certainly one to watch. And as many uh, as more institutions that are using TikTok can maybe have their uh, let their voices be heard, you may see a groundswell of support for continuing TikTok to exist in the United States, or it may just fall on deaf ears depending on how the political winds blow. So we'll, we'll keep you posted, obviously, here on the Roundup as to what that looks like, and obviously in the newsletter as well. Now, here's a really interesting topic. And when I first was writing the headline for this, I'm like, this question, I was like, is that really going to make sense? And it may need some further explanation. That's why we have the roundup, to go a little deeper on these topics. Second question is, why should Australia recruitment in Latin America worry U.S. universities? Okay. Uh, Australia, beginning in the early 2000s, probably early to mid-90s, started to become active in recruiting students in Latin America. And they were doing this for a lot of the same reasons that U.S. colleges are now uh, needing to diversify beyond uh, South and East Asia. Uh, that Though those countries in South and East Asia will, for the foreseeable future, represent the bulk of all international students, the greater majority of international students that study in the United States. It's currently at about 70%. So what's that come from South and East Asia? So why... Um, uh, when Australia made this realization back in the mid noughties they realized that, hey, we need to look beyond, uh, and the numbers aren't huge, huge, uh, like China or India never will be, but in terms of their numbers coming from uh, Latin America, uh, we talked a little bit about this a month or two ago. About a month ago, we talked about Canada's recruitment in Latin America, how their numbers uh, recruiting Mexico, in students from Mexico uh, overall, their numbers from, of Mexican students studying in Canada are almost at our levels, just over 10,000 uh, of Mexicans in the United States. Uh, I think the numbers from Open Doors suggested there were about 14,000 or so uh, in 2022. Uh, in the 2021-22 uh, Open Doors report were from Mexico. Uh, in Canada, they're, they're already over 10,000 uh, from Mexico, and they're closing in, and those numbers are growing quite rapidly, and similarly in Latin America. Uh, but what we're seeing for Australia is something quite similar. Uh, there are two, uh, two countries that are in particular that are, are, are indicated in uh, this Pi News article uh, that focuses on Colombia. The tag is Colombian student numbers, highest ever uh, for Australian universities. The total number of Colombians at the end of 2022 came in at 28,437. 
And that includes uh, enrollments and uh, commencements and year-to-date visa lodgement figures offshore. So uh, what does that mean? Where are we for Colombia? Uh, Colombians in the United States, currently just over 8,000. Let that sink in for a minute. There are three times more Colombians studying in Australian universities than they are in the United States. Columbia is a top 25, top 20 center, 25 center to the United States, coming in around 18 or 19 or so uh, in the re most recent Open Doors report. So that's only with 8,000. Well, Australia has triple that currently from Columbia in Australia. How have they done that? They've done that through recruitment fairs. They've done that through scholarship schemes uh, that uh, they've used Austrade, their uh, version of the Department of Commerce, to reach students in, in Colombia for years, and not just in Colombia, but all throughout Latin America. And another country is Brazil. Uh, number of Brazilians in Australia. Uh, and Brazil, keep in mind, Brazil at one point in the U.S. was probably in the 20s, mid-20s maybe, I think was the highest, 20,000 plus Brazilians in the U.S. during the scientific mobility days that were studying at U.S. institutions, many of which were non-degree students doing that year exchange. But the Brazilian numbers in the United States currently are less than 15,000 as of the 2022 Open Doors Report. Less than 15,000. Brazilians studying in Australia, over 24,500 as of the end of 2022. So those numbers should be a wake-up call for U.S. institutions to think that Latin America, that's just our backyard. We own that. They'll always come to us. Wrong. <laughs> We're being skinned by our competitors from other markets, from uh, from Australia. We're starting to see it from Canada. The UK has been uh, getting busy in Latin America for a number of years. So we are falling behind in our recruitment of Latin American students to U.S. schools. And it means we have to have a more regular, consistent presence in those markets if we want to have a sh hope of regaining some of that market share. Because Latin America is a, a growing region. It's, it will continue to become a uh, uh, a, cent, a, a net sender to the to uh, of students abroad. So, how are we positioned as a country to help reach many of these students in the in the in those regions? And we know in the U.S., Mexico, Colombia, Brazil are the top senders uh, from Latin America to the United States. But when we look at the overall numbers, we're getting beat by Australia quite significantly uh, in Brazil and Colombia and Canada catching up with us in Mexico. So we, we have a lot of work to do if we're going to if we're going to keep our keep and expand our market share in Latin America. And absolutely first thing I tell my, my, my leadership on campuses, we cannot we never have been active in Latin America, but we cannot take it for granted. Now we have to become engaged there. We have to actively have a presence there. We have to be there regularly in our target markets in Latin America if we want to have sustain, sustained success there. So we're really starting from nothing, really, with, with what we're doing in Latin America uh, for recruiting degree-seeking students uh, at UNLV. So we're beginning this journey. But when I, I talk to other colleagues, when I shared this, this, one, this one article and the numbers with them, uh, I get a lot of surprised looks from colleagues when they see, whoa, they're kicking our butts down in Colombia. They're kicking our butts in Brazil. How did this happen? Well, they started 
15 years ago, uh, becoming more active in Latin America. So uh, in in terms of what what next steps we need to be taking uh, as institutions, it's, it's making sure we have a presence, uh, whether in-country reps, whether uh, working closely with EdUSA, now that we can travel there regularly, getting in-country on a regular basis to our key markets, uh, participating in, the, in visits to schools and fairs, becoming a part of the fabric of the, of the educational establishment in those countries, identifying institutional partnerships that can potentially lead to uh, uh, pipelines of students both ways. So there's a lot of work to be done uh, when it comes to these partnerships and a lot of um, a lot of attention that we haven't been paying to Latin America. We need to be certain that we are moving forward because it shouldn't be just this, uh, the the um, the border states or the southern U.S. states that uh, are active in recruit, recruiting in Latin America. Uh, all of us can be active in recruiting in Latin America uh, throughout across the country. So that's my call and plea to my U.S. colleagues. Get yourself to Latin America. Uh, get there in country. It's a long-term relationship, and that's why it's taken 15 years for Australia to see the gains that they've had. Uh, in terms of uh, what's uh, what's coming down coming down the road, there are more fairs that are popping up. Uh, some of the uh, Education USA fairs have, have become huge in recent years, but they've even they are telling us how 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 much we're behind compared to the competition down there. Uh, so I think it's important for all of us to, to take a close look at some of these key markets. And uh, if we have already large populations on our campus from Latin America, we need to be utilizing them in recruitment of future students. Uh, we can't take them for granted anymore in terms of uh, that they'll just come uh, because we've had students before. In some schools that might work, but in most of us, most of our institutions, even if we have uh, populations from these countries, we need to be consistently vigilant to make sure we're, we're nurturing those relationships in country, that we can continue to receive students and present the, uh, the total package for, for students and parents from that region about what our institutions can do for them. So in, hopefully an eye-opening topic for a number of us here to really take a look at what's happening uh, with rela relations to some of our key markets that we profess our key markets uh, to see what, uh, what might be coming down the pike. Now, a last question of the day, and this is one that I've, I've, I've been wanting to ta tackle for, uh, for a while, but it also hopefully an eye-opening one for us here, uh, on, for our, at least my U.S. colleagues, is what do big jumps in 2022 new international student numbers mean for the U.K. and Canada? All right. We all know in the United States we have about a million students from overseas in the United States that are at non-degree, uh, ESL, uh, exchange, um, bachelor's degree, associate bachelor's degree, master's, doctoral levels, all levels of study, plus OPT. Uh, that's how we count our international students in the United States. Uh, we're, most, uh, most countries, they have separate categories for uh, that post-study work that we call OPT. They, uh, in Canada, it's called the PG, P, PGWP. Uh, in the UK, it's called the Graduate Work Route. Uh, in Australia, it's called something else. So, but uh, our OPT is, our, because they are still student status in the United States, they counted as that part of that 1 million. So if you look at our numbers overall, uh, in terms of new international students uh, that come in, each year uh, that we've generally see about uh, 
200 to 300. Uh, I think the most recent one was 261,000 new internationals last year. 261,000. So we're in the U.S. That's, I think, at the peak of uh, peak pre-pandemic, we're close to close to, but I think under 300,000 a year. Now. 300,000 a year, that, that probably was at our peak in terms of new international students that started in the United States uh, in a given year, and that's probably 2016, 17, I think. Uh, that is was our peak. We were down to 261, I think, this past year uh, in terms of the open doors from 20, November 22. Uh, so let's just take a guess at what Canada and what the UK had for new international enrollees in 2022. We get their numbers a lot quicker than we get them in the United than we get ours in the U.S. For Canada, Canada enrolled in 2022 551,000 new international students. 551,000. That's more than double what we had in the pre in the same year or in the previous year. So. <laughs> Canada enrolled 551,405 new international students in 2022. Now, that catapulted their total numbers to over 800,000 international students currently in Canada on study permits, or their, their, our version of student, student visas. So in one year, they took in double, more than double, what we take in, what we took in last year. So... Uh, Canada's higher ed system is a lot different because those numbers, that 800,000 number, also includes uh, their vocational education sector, which is absolutely enormous. Same in Australia. Uh, students that enroll in vocational education, one or two, three-year diplomas, uh, and then getting work permission from there, those numbers are astronomical in Canada. Uh, when you consider that only there's only 150 or so universities and colleges, and then they, all these uh, vocational colleges are uh, on top of that, uh, that I don't have the breakdown, and the, the Canada article does not put the breakdown as to how many of those were university level, how many were vocational level. But their vocational education sector and Australia's puts ours to shame in the U.S. Our M M1 visa numbers, which is where our vocational students count for the most part, are under 50,000 uh, 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 in terms of total numbers. So we are uh, getting our, <laughs> getting, uh, we are falling behind uh, is the only, is the easiest way to put that. Now, these are the numbers for Canada. 551,405 new international students in 2022. We enrolled 261,000 in 2021-22. So in that academic year. So uh, more than double, Canada has new international students that started this past year. So again, we're well behind there. For the UK, UK had in uh, 2022 nearly 490,000 new international students, an 81% increase over pre-pandemic levels, not just the year before, where the pandemic was still in effect. China and Nigeria, a number of uh, important South Asian markets are their main drivers. Uh, that 90% uh, of their student visas are for higher ed. So this is unlike Canada, where it's maybe even half and half of their international study permits, student study permits are for uh, 
are for vocational. I, I'm, I'm guessing that's what the number is, but uh, that's the percentages at least. In the UK, it's 90% of theirs are for higher education of their new students. So again, we had 261 in 21-22. In 2022, UK had 490. So not quite double, but uh, certainly significantly more than we take in in the US last year. We're falling behind. What does that mean? Uh, what, for the UK, their numbers are driven largely by graduate students uh, because of the decline, uh, as we have seen in the US, they've seen in, in the UK as well, a decline in Chinese undergraduates, but they have been killing it during the pandemic uh, and in past, in coming out of the pandemic, killing it with not China and Nigeria. Uh, our numbers, their numbers have been escalating dramatically that the majority of the, those that are coming in, from India, from China, are for postgraduate programs, typically, primarily, they're one-year master's degree programs. That's where they've seen their growth grow most significantly uh, over the last three years. So that 490,000 new internationals puts us to shame. Uh, more, more than 230,000 more new students went to the UK than came to the US in the last year. So we are behind these two competitors in terms of total volume of new students starting, new international students starting over the last two years. So we've got a lot of work, work cut out for us, don't we, here in the U.S. So I wanted to leave those two numbers with you uh, because they really jump off the page at me. And I think for all of us, these are the kind of numbers that we need to be sharing with our leadership on campus to share with them how significant other countries are in their successful international student recruitment and how we in the U.S. are falling behind. Now, we won't know our new numbers until, uh, till, till from this, this current academic year until November when the next Open Doors comes out. But for the, these new numbers uh, we're in, that we're seeing in Canada and the U.K. in particular, uh, we have a lot of work to do. So that's my message for all of you as we leave today here, leave the roundup here today, is to recognize just how much uh, work there's left to be done and how much uh, we, uh, we can learn from our competitors and, and sectors that we need to develop more in the United States to be more competitive abroad uh, for the same students. So until next time, that's all we have for you on the Midweek Roundup. Have a very good rest of your week. Cheers.